Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We have covered some important material in the last few episodes, ideas that I believe changes the game in a big way for the disciples going forward. With that material looming in the background, we need to remember that the conversation which began in Caesarea Philippi is by no means over. Let's read further into the discussion as we look at Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. As we have seen in the last three episodes, the big reveal of the hour is the messianic and even divine nature of the man standing before them. The Holy Spirit is doing something truly amazing in their midst, and Jesus is being seen for who he really is. The anticipation of the nation had been right. The Messiah was in fact coming in their time. He was here, and these men were following the right guy. And not only are they following the right guy, they are actually being groomed as leaders of his messianic community. They are being given unique responsibility and authority, and the privilege of being foundational stones in the church which was soon to form. The kingdom of God was being revealed in the world, and the key to the door has been given to them. It was a truly special revelation, something worth celebrating, something that would have captured the hearts and hopes of the disciples like nothing else. But then, Jesus' next words play out like a really bad TV shopping show. But wait, there's more. In our passage for this episode, Jesus is beginning to spell out what's coming to him, just a few short months from here. And as we read on, we notice that he's needed to kind of drip-feed this information to them over a few events, of which this is the first. In this teaching, Jesus reveals that Israel's leadership are going to ensure that he dies. Not long after, he spells out further that he would be put to death at specifically human hands an indicator that his death will be a bigger deal than merely political martyrdom. The third time is spoken as they approach Jerusalem for the final time, and it is quite specific. The religious people are going to hand him over to Gentile people. He will be mocked, he will be flogged, and eventually killed. But the disciples were instructed at every stage that these things would not be the end. Resurrection would be certain and they could wait in expectation of that. You and I know how the end plays out, but these disciples were still somewhat in the dark with that, hence the actions of Peter here. Before we get too hard on him, it's worth considering the nation's mindset a little more first. 
Historically, we know that the concept of suffering was not a part of first century Jewish expectations regarding their coming Messiah. This was a bit of a blind spot for them at the time, but the signs were there if those who studied the Old Testament looked a little deeper. For example, way back in episode 1, we saw that Jesus was introduced by the Father at the time of his baptism with phrases from Isaiah chapter 42, a passage regarding a suffering servant. Isaiah 52 and 53 spell this idea out in great detail also. The four servant songs of Isaiah tell a powerful story of the person and the work of Jesus. Other prophetic voices like Daniel point to a holy anointed one coming in tumultuous times but being put to death and having it seem like his life amounted to nothing. But after six centuries of lost sovereignty culminating with the current Roman occupation, the Jews were looking awfully hard and hoping for more of a conquering hero. In their first century mindset, the prophetic Messiah fitted that bill and they were overlooking or misunderstanding the suffering part. Surely that which God would send would be all-conquering and would drive all their enemies away before their eyes. That's what they wanted, and that's what the people had been trained to expect, Peter and the disciples included. It was a case of a skewed first-century conclusion bias in place here. These were the thoughts of the Jewish man at the time. Meanwhile, in the spiritual realm, we know that a Messiah suffering was something that Satan wanted to avoid at all costs too. We saw this in episode 2, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted to make bread from stones because Israel expected manna to fall from the skies again. He was tempted to fall from a building so that everyone would look up to him there and know he was the one as angels swept him up. He was even tempted to go for a blood-free takeover by siding with Satan. He could have the people and the planet, provided he declared that Satan was boss. Perfect blood, shed to the point of death, meant redemption for all mankind that could not be undone. Such bloodshed meant healing. It meant salvation. It meant genuine atonement for sin. It meant an end to rituals and ceremony that merely pointed to salvation which was still to come. It meant the power of sin and death would be broken once and for all. And it meant the end for Satan and the destruction of his work was coming sooner rather than later. He was not on board with a suffering Messiah for purely personal reasons. Any talk of bloodshed needed to be quelled fast, and what he really needed in this moment was a like-minded human mouthpiece. Imagine his joy when he found it among those closest to Jesus at the time. Just as Peter was the voice for all the disciples in confessing Jesus as Messiah, Peter is being used as the collective voice of the twelve here, hence Jesus addressing them all in his rebuke back. The message coming from the powers of darkness is clear here and is delivered sharply. Peter is being used to rebuke Jesus. This is Satan using the same approach that had been used against him all through Jesus' ministry to this point. The word in the Greek means to charge strictly. In other words, to identify a fault or a wrong and authoritatively cast it away. Satan was causing the disciples to identify the cross to come as an evil to cast out, not something to embrace as the source of their atonement and redemption. Jesus is clearly not on board with this at all and calls both Satan and the disciples out on their perspectives, what he calls the thoughts of man. 
These are the thoughts that ignore Scripture. These are the thoughts that seek personal comfort and human glory. These are the thoughts that seek to be elevated above those of God. So at this point, let's ask ourselves a reflective question. What thoughts are we leaning into? The misguided and sinful thoughts of man or the holy and righteous thoughts of God? I believe that we in the modern church are starting to like a blood-free gospel a little more than we would like to think. Some of us simply find ourselves drawn to the more comfortable or sanitized versions of the gospel. Some of us like the gospel that promotes prosperity and blessing, with some even implying erroneously that all our problems somehow disappear through this faith. But I'm finding more and more that the cross of Christ is being presented as less and less powerful or consequential to our faith than it should be. An increasing number of current and popular speakers are denying the need for atonement of sin and describing the cross more as a love story than a sacrificial step. I believe these are the thoughts of man, not the thoughts of God. These are the thoughts Jesus rebuked right back when Peter tried to forcefully talk him out of suffering. A blood-free gospel, or a gospel where the cross is not a means of atonement, leads to the conclusion that the choices of our lives don't matter all that much to God. Such thinking trivializes sin and it ignores the holiness of God. The thoughts of man want a blood-free and feel-good religious expression, where sin is trivial and God is all-knowing, all-powerful and all-conquering, but not all that concerned about the way we live. In the thoughts of man, God simply forgives everyone with no cost or effort from himself or us in the process. The thoughts of God are different. In his holy view, sin is offensive and punishable by death, both by our bodies now and in eternity. The only remedy for sin was always, in God's estimation, the shedding of blood. The law of Moses pointed to it in a symbolic way with innocent and spotless lambs. The finale of that remedy was the perfect blood of the Lamb of God, the divine Messiah who stood before them that day in Caesarea Philippi. The cross was a necessary instrument in the messianic plan of God. The thoughts of God would lead to the suffering of Jesus but this would be the means of salvation for the whole world. There is no such thing as a blood-free or atonement-free gospel. So as we continue to read, this is what Jesus is calling disciples to embrace, and we will explore that in the next episode. For now, why not take some time to reflect and realign yourself if need be? If you are caught up in the thoughts of man, if you are enamored with other Gospels, the challenge is to discard those and lean further into the thoughts of God. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.